Is there a point at which a change of heart no longer means anything to God? Because the central story of the Bible seems to be God is looking for repentance and a change of heart. For many, the simple argument has been, why if this is the central narrative, if hope is the driving sort of engine of this redemption story, why would God at some point say, hope, now there's no hope anymore. The voice that you heard in the video does not belong to somebody who came to fame by attacking religion or people of faith. As a matter of fact, that voice belongs uh, to a man who was once a well-known and widely loved uh, pastor. And the man that I'm talking about is a guy named Rob Bell. And there's probably more than a few of us in our church who read some of his books or benefited from his uh, video Bible study series called NUMA. And some years ago, Rob Bell transitioned from a well-known and well-loved pastor to a lightning rod for debate when he published a book called Love Wins. And the short version is this. We've gotten hell all wrong, and eventually just about everybody makes it to heaven. Is he right? Are there good reasons to recalibrate our thinking when it comes to the subject of hell? Uh, hopefully, you are able to say from memory what has been our uh, thesis, uh, our, our theme verse for this series. It's 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And today, it's our intent uh, to try and model the three commands that we see in this verse. We want to revere Christ. We're going to give an answer that's based on good reasons, and we're going to wrap it all in gentleness and respect. And if we're able to do that, then we'll all have all that we need to be able to respond to truth. And we'll be able to respond to the truth with our full selves. And so this is Rob Bell's question to us. Is there a point at which a change of heart no longer means anything to God? In other words, he's asking the question, is hell forever? Is there no escape for people in hell who feel remorse? And would a loving God actually send and keep people in hell? And this is one of those uh, messages that really pushes me to the limits of my own bravery, but maybe not for the reasons that you might think. Getting honest with you about the things that Jesus got honest about, it doesn't ignite fear in me. It doesn't make me feel insecure. I don't get excited to talk about hell, but it doesn't make me nervous or afraid to talk about it. The thing that really pushes me to the limits of my own bravery is I know that this is a message. I know that this is a topic for, that is emotionally radioactive for many of us. For some of us, it's just emotionally volatile. And maybe you've heard me talk about this kind of thing before, but it's like all of us are surrounded by a, by a minefield, and we each have our own emotional landmines. And the problem is, is I don't know where yours are, and I can't promise that I won't step on one today. And when somebody steps on one of our emotional landmines, the only thing we can process is the explosion going off inside of us. And we're no, longer, we're no longer listening because we've lost our capacity to listen. So if that's the case, how do we have a conversation like this today? Well, I'm going to ask you to do a few things at the outset. I'm going to ask you, would you make some pre-decisions before we go any further with this message to really help this be the kind of conversation that can be healthy and move forward? And these are the kind of pre-decisions I'm talking about. 
Would you give yourself permission to feel whatever you feel? It's allowed. You don't have to justify it. You don't have to defend it. However you feel is how you feel, and that's okay. Would you resist making conclusions until you've been able to listen to all that I've said? If you need to go back and, and listen to this message again or rewatch this message again, that's totally allowed and do that as many times as you need to. I've kind of lost track of the number of times that people have quoted me to me and what they think I said is not at all what I said. So if you need to go back and listen again, that's okay, do that. Recently, we launched a podcast. I don't know if you're a podcaster, but uh, podcast fan, but we launched a podcast called Church is Messy. Every Wednesday, uh, we publish new episodes. And this week, we're going to go further with this subject. Listening to that might be helpful for you. But after today's message, if you're saying, I can't wait, I need to talk to someone now, there will be pastors standing underneath the cross at the end of the service. I'm going to be over there. And if there's anyone who'd like to talk or you just want someone to pray with you, please take advantage of that. Here's another predecision. Let's take truth seriously. This is one of our values. And every single one of us have to wrestle down. Do we have an allegiance to what's true or to what we want to be true? Is our allegiance to a cherished viewpoint on the truth or is it actually to the truth? We all have to ask ourselves, are we so loyal to the truth that we maintain our allegiance to truth, even if it means that we have to say, you know what, been sincerely wrong about this. And the last one is give grace relentlessly, another one of our values. I'm asking, would you give me grace as I'm standing in front of you trying to talk about a very difficult subject? But I also want you to give yourself grace. And one of the reasons is because this is something that we approach with strong emotions. And whenever there are uh, uh, emotions, you take emotions plus misunderstanding, and that can create a that can create a toxic combination. And I don't want that for you, and I don't think we want that for each other. And when we're talking about a biblical understanding of hell, believe it or not, sometimes we bring more misunderstanding than we might realize. And whether you're a person who believes in hell or you reject hell, when I say the word hell, something comes to mind for you. Do you know what shapes your ideas about hell? Do you know where they came from? I think you owe it to you to know where they came from. Some people's viewpoints on hell have been largely shaped by medieval paintings or by cartoons with horned devils and pitchforks. For some of us, we've really been shaped by movies and TV. A popular TV show right now uh, that's shaping people's understanding about hell is The Good Place, ironically named. If you think of hell as this, this subterranean cavern where there are ghoulish beings that are tormenting people, did you know that you are not imagining a biblical view on hell? That there is so much in our cultural milieu that shapes how we think about this subject more so than the words of Jesus, more so than what biblical writers wrote. And so today, this is what we're going to do. We're going to listen intently to one of the times that Jesus taught on hell. And we're going to try and take seriously what he had to say. So we're going to turn to Luke 16. There's a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. That's not the same Lazarus who was Jesus' good friend that you would read about in John 11, different guy. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Right off the bat, I'm going to ask you to notice something. Notice that one man is named and the other is not. Why is that? 
Jesus is more than just a clever storyteller. He is a master communicator, and he knows how to pack deep truth and the ways that we learn best. And the way that we learn best is through story. That's why Jesus told the story. Why is Jesus trying to communicate to us by naming one and not naming the other? That's something that we're going to have to come to terms with today. He continues, talking about this poor man, Lazarus, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And the time in which Jesus spoke, people thought of Abraham as the friend of God. His audience would have immediately understood that Lazarus being at Abraham's side meant that he was in the presence of God. He's in heaven. It was also commonly thought that if you were a rich person, if you were well off, clearly you had the favor of God. So if this poor beggar is in heaven. Certainly, the rich man is there too, right? Well, Jesus answers the question, where is he? In Hades, where he was in torment. Or in hell, where he was in torment. And he looked up and he saw Abraham far away. And the rich man saw Lazarus by his side. And now I think we're ready to really dig into why is one man named and the other left unnamed? Lazarus is named to show that he is known by God and he has a true and lasting identity. And the rich man is left unnamed to show that he did not have a true and lasting identity. And we're not trying to say that he ceased to exist, but he continues to consciously exist in this place called hell, totally undone. He lost his sense of self. He lost his identity. It was eaten away by his wealth because that is what he built his life on. That is what he lived for. And the point is not that wealth is inherently evil and poverty is pious. That's not the point. The point is, is that that is what he lived for. And that's what he tried to build his life on and it swallowed him up and he lost himself. And Jesus leaves this man unnamed to show the trajectory that someone is on into agony towards torment if they try to find life or identity in something else other than the God who made us in his image. And this is why we ask the question around here, what is the story that you're telling yourself about yourself? And we are fooling ourselves if we don't respond to that question with urgency. What are you looking to for your significance, for your security, for your identity? And that question is immensely important as we go further into the story, as we see what the torment and agony of hell is. It is an infinite and inward spiral into narcissism. Jesus continues, so this rich man, he calls him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Are you kidding me? This man, he still sees Lazarus as his servant? How arrogant, how condescending, how self-important must you be to be in hell and see someone in heaven as beneath you and you are entitled to their servitude. This is where a man like Pastor Tim Keller is helpful. I wanna share with you an observation that he makes. He says this, commentators have noted the astonishing amount of denial, blame shifting, and spiritual blindedness in this soul in hell. They have also noted the rich man, unlike Lazarus, is never given a personal name. 
strongly hinting that since he built his identity on his wealth rather than on God, once he lost his wealth, he lost any sense of self. In short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. A few minutes ago, I said, strong emotions plus misunderstanding can make for a toxic combination. It's important to remember because if you are thinking of hell, if you imagine hell as a place where people are in agony and desperate to get out, you are not yet understanding a biblical perspective on hell. Hell is a place of agony, but it is not a place where people are asking to leave. They want relief, but they are not asking to leave. Notice that the rich man did not ask to be let out. Why is that? Because hell does not ignite repentance. It intensifies defiance. And we see this rich man sinking deeper into the abyss of his pride, of his sin, of his defiance that led him there in the first place. And with this in view, I think we're ready to seriously respond to Rob Bell's question. Is there a point at which a change of heart no longer means anything to God? But the answer is no. With all my heart, I want you to hear the answer to that question is no. And if you have resisted or if anyone has been hesitant to trust in Jesus, now is the time to respond. But the inescapable message of Jesus is this. People who are in hell are not asking to leave. It is not a place where people go to learn their lesson. It is a place where people only and ever sink deeper into their defiance. Let's look again. Let's look again at this last thing that Jesus said. Talking about the rich man, he called to Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony and this fire. And the question that we should ask, should we understand that literally or should we understand that figuratively? Is the fire literal or is it figurative? What do you think? As you think about that, especially if you're a note-taker, I'd like for you to take note of this. We shouldn't think of hell as a metaphor to describe anguish. Metaphor is used to describe the anguish of hell. We say things like hell on earth, or we might say that war is hell. And we have expressions like that when we're trying to describe something that is truly awful or deeply pain-ridden. But when Jesus talked about hell, it wasn't a metaphor, it's literal. And yet, it's not always literal in the way that hell is described. Throughout the teaching of Jesus and throughout the biblical teaching on hell, there are two dominant metaphors that are used. Do you know what they are? Those two dominant metaphors are fire and darkness. Fire is a metaphor for disintegration, not, not that you dissolve and no longer exist, but you, you lose your sense of self. You are undone. You lose any true and lasting identity. You don't know who you are. And we see this in the way that Jesus talked about the rich man. Darkness is not a metaphor that Jesus used in this particular instance when he taught on hell, but it is a metaphor that he used when he talked about hell. And it's also, we also see it with other biblical writers. And darkness is a metaphor that means isolation. If you take these two pictures together, of fire and darkness, and you try to understand them literally, it paints a picture that's contradictory, doesn't it? 
How do you have a place that's lit up with fire and utterly dark at the same time? But if you understand these figuratively, it paints a picture that is complementary, that hell is a place of fire, of disintegration, where we lose our sense of self, and it is a place of isolation where we are cut off from the presence of God and cut off from all connection with other people. That is hell. But I need to caution us. The use of metaphor should not soften the intensity in which we imagine and think about hell. As a matter of fact, the use of metaphor should cause us to tremble a bit more fiercely. The use of metaphor is an indicator that language falls short in describing its true reality. Now, there is a place in the New Testament where hell is described in a bit more straightforward way, not so much metaphor. It's written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote a letter to a group of Christians in the city of Thessalonica. He said this, they will be punished with everlasting fire. They, people who do not trust in Jesus, they will be punished with everlasting destruction. And this word destruction doesn't mean cease to exist. It's really the idea of being ruined. And they'll be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That hell is everlasting or never-ending ruin. And Rob Bell wants us to imagine that perhaps hell isn't forever. Perhaps it is temporary. Well, let's take that seriously. Let's respond to that honestly. I highlighted this word, everlasting, because this is also the same word that's used to describe heaven. And so if we're going to take the Bible seriously, and I hope that you do, we have to conclude this. However long heaven lasts, that's how long hell lasts. This is not something to be trifled with. Both love and reason would demand that we be honest about it, and that we not hide from it. And there might be some who are here in the room or some watching online who say, Rick, I'm not hiding from it. I just don't believe in it. I don't think a serious-minded person can take hell seriously. It seems unreasonable. And there are two really common objections to hell, and maybe these are things that you've thought of that have compelled people to reject hell. And it's this. It's hell is unjust and hell is unloving. What would you say to that? What would you say in response to someone who said this to you? Let's respond to this honestly and, and sincerely today. And as we do, I want to first look back on how God's people have long thought of the idea of divine judgment. And to do that, we're going to go back to the Old Testament book of Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 98. It says, shout for, what's this word? Joy. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together with joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world and righteousness and the people with equity or fairness. Joy and judgment go together. And the reason that it's a source of joy is because when God comes to bring judgment, it is goodness and it is fair. Does that describe how you think of divine judgment? Rob Bell was right to emphasize hope. That's the right thing to emphasize. It's a dominant theme throughout God's word. And God's judgment has long been a source of abiding hope for his people because he is going to bring righteousness and justice. 
and it's just unshakable. All peoples long for justice. And justice is God's willingness and his ability to take broken things, ruined things, undone things, and to make them right. And we long for that, don't we? We want things made right. We want justice. We want it. We need it. But it begs the question, if all people just kind of long for justice and we want things to be made right, and when God brings judgment, it's good and fair, why is there an objection at all? It's because there's a sense inside of some of us, maybe many of us, maybe inside of you, and that's okay, that there's something about hell that just doesn't seem fair. And the question is this, isn't it wrong to punish a finite crime for an infinite amount of time? I mean, to punish for all eternity, even a lifetime full of sin, that is a question of equity. That's a question of fairness. And this objection is understandable. But if we were to really take it seriously, I think we'll quickly find that it's unreasonable. I'm curious, is there anyone in here who remembers the Stanford rape case of 2016? In 2016, college freshman at Stanford University was found guilty on three counts of felony sexual assault because he raped a fellow student behind a dumpster. And the judge sentenced him to six months in jail after his dad pleaded with the judge to not ruin his son's life based on a crime that only lasted minutes. And so the, so the judge agreed. What do you think about that? It only lasted minutes, so we only got six months. Would you say that judge is good? How many of us would say from the deepest part of who we are, that is not justice? Because we just, we intuitively, we understand this. The cost of the punishment is based on the value of the person that was dishonored. The justice demands that that the response should be based on the immense value of the person who was assaulted, not how long it took to carry out the assault. And so this case became something that got the entire country's attention. It was a source of national outrage, and, and many people widely condemned this judge for not holding the guilty sufficiently accountable. And here's the point. However God responds to our sin, however he responds to your sin and to my sin, Justice demands that that response is based on the value of the one who is dishonored. That our sin dishonors an infinitely good, an infinitely holy, an infinitely loving, and an infinitely beautiful God. Everlasting ruin is not unjust. It is the only just response. And so if that's what reason demands, why is there something inside of us that says, I just can't be so? I think it's this. Everyone wants to receive justice. No one wants to be served justice. And this is one of the reasons why you will hear me say over and over again, the gospel is good news. But it begins with bad news. And the bad news is that we are on the wrong side of justice. This is why the only reasonable response to Jesus has to begin with humility and repentance. 
which leads us to the second objection. And somebody might respond, and you might be thinking this, Rick, you want me to respond to Jesus because he is loving? Isn't hell the opposite of love? And the question sounds like this, isn't it unloving for God to torment someone? And again, this is a question that's understandable. But if we take the time to look at it seriously, I think we'll begin to see quite quickly that it's unreasonable. This is where somebody like C.S. Lewis is very helpful. I want to share with you his response. This is my response as well. C.S. Lewis said this, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? Are you asking God to wipe away their past sins at all costs, to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. Are you asking God to forgive them? They will not be forgiven. Are you asking God to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. Hell is not unreasonable. It's just the opposite. It's the only reasonable and just response from God to us. You know what is unreasonable? Grace. That Jesus would bathe himself in hell so that we could be in heaven with him. And that's what makes this week so astounding. I hope that you'll be here on Friday night as we remember what Jesus endured on the cross for us. And then on Sunday, we're going to celebrate. And after a message like this, I'm really looking forward to next Sunday when we celebrate together. We will celebrate what Jesus accomplished for us through his resurrection. But today, as we anticipate that, is an opportunity to intentionally respond to Jesus and to take what he says seriously. Some of you who know the story know we haven't gotten quite to the end of this story that Jesus told, so let's wrap it up together now. Continuing, this rich man um, had said to Abraham, send Lazarus to serve me water. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. Well, Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm or a great divide has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And then he answered, the rich man said, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. He's still, he's so narcissistic. He's so entitled. He still sees Lazarus as his servant. I beg you, send Lazarus to my family for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In other words, they have God's word. That is sufficient. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. It is possible to have a heart that is so hard and resistant that no amount of evidence, no amount of information, no act of God is going to soften it. And so the question, the question that I think we should ask ourselves is this, do we have hard, resistant hearts or do we have soft, receptive hearts? And as Jesus concluded this story, there are three things that jump out at me that I want us to take note of. And the first one is this, everyone has been given everything they need to be able to respond to him. 
And I would never ask you, we would never ask you to go against your better judgment. If you are not convinced, if you have unanswered questions about Jesus, don't delay, leave no stone unturned, get your questions answered. I would encourage you to go to starting point. But we have received all that we need. We have his word and we have good things that point to why we should trust in him. Would you take advantage of that? The second thing is this. Now is the time to respond. It would be wrong to say that there are no second chances because our lives are full of countless opportunities to turn to Jesus. Now is one of those times. And yet, all of the opportunities that we have are in this life alone. There are no opportunities after this life. So how do you want to intentionally respond to Jesus now? And the third thing that stands out to me is really a question that I have. And it's based on the request that this rich man gave. He said, would you send someone to my five brothers so that they would repent? So this is my question. Are there people in hell more committed to sharing the gospel than some people who are on their way to heaven? And I don't ask this question lightly. As I was preparing for this message, this is a question that messed me up. And some people might say, Rick, you're overstating the question. And you might be right. This guy is in hell. He's not asking to leave, and yet there's something in him that wants the people that he cares for to not end up there. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you, were say, if you would say that you are his, would you really lean into this with me? When is the last time you played a role in helping someone come to know and follow Jesus? If you're struggling to remember a time or to answer the question, let me ask this question. And I ask it from a place where I intend to be gentle. Is it possible that you're living your life as though you don't believe hell is real? A message like this reminds us of the urgency of our mission, of why our church exists. This is our mission. We exist to lead people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. This, goes, this is why our church is founded. This is why our church has existed. And our most important set of beliefs, this is elevated. If you were to read our church's statement of faith, this is what you will find. We believe God has laid upon the members of the local church the primary task of giving the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost world. The primary task. The most important thing we could invest ourselves in is helping other people to know and follow Jesus because he is so good. And it doesn't matter how wide or a deep of a thinker you may be, his grace and his love spills over the banks of what we believe is possible. And all of that love and grace, he directs towards you. So whether you are a follower of Jesus or you're not yet a follower of Jesus, would you let his words grip you today? 
Or would you resolve to not be casual in your response to this message today? One of the last things I want to leave you with is this. Everyone lives forever somewhere. And you can choose whether you want to react and recoil against the ugliness of hell or if we want to respond to the goodness and the love and the grace of Jesus. I want to remind us of what was written in Psalm 98. Sing a jubilant song. Shout for joy because God is good and he is fair. But it's actually better than that because fairness means I get what I deserve. But because Jesus is so loving and so gracious, he took what we deserve so that we can have what he deserves. Let's respond to that. And in just a moment, we are going to choose to celebrate that. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, sometimes seeing the truth is hard, but help us see it in such a way that we understand that your grace and your love and your goodness and your justice shine even brighter. God, help us to not shy away, but to see Jesus and all that he has given us, that we would delight in him. And God, would you give us the joy of sharing him with others? God, would you use us as a people that help other people come to know him so they can enjoy all of the love and the grace that we've received in you? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.